What is crackalacking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host, Adam Frommel, who needed to, uh, was unable to make it at the, the semi-last minute. So we're going to do another solo mailbag. You guys sent in a, a bunch of questions. Let's just first start off really quickly with our housekeeping notes. Um, programming note, you might get three pods from us next week just because I have some trade deadline stuff I'm trying to get out. And maybe Adam and I will do a second mailbag together earlier in the week, just given the 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 guests that I have coming on, the schedule we have is like smack dab in the middle of the week. So have to figure that out, but you'll definitely be getting at least two. And we have a fun little just trade deadline primer coming out for every team, buy, sell, or hold, and just going a little bit more in detail with what they're supposed to do. Another announcement, we officially have a Discord channel. I have not been pumping the shit out of it on social media yet to promote it. I'm trying to figure out what it's going to be. We set up chats for all 30 teams. We set up main rooms if you want to talk about trades. Um, general, there's, of course, a Frank Neal Aquinas server, chat, whatever you call it, channel. Uh, the goal here, you guys have been so great with sending me direct message questions, always responding to our mailbag solicitations, just engaging with us for the most part in general. We would love to just tr- let that community spill over to Discord where maybe you all can talk with each other, rap about hoops with each other, respectfully, of course. The link is in the bio. Not sure if we're just going to throw it out on social media a ton. Uh, if you're you know, need it, just you could DM me at Dan Valley, F-A-V-A-L-E, if for some reason you're not able to get it from the uh, the description of this this podcast, and I'm sure we'll promote a little bit more. Join. We want people in there. We want that to be a success. There'll be other stuff that we can do uh, attached to it, but it is here. A couple of people have asked about it uh, in the past, and we have made the leap. Adam is still not joined, uh, mostly because I did not send him the room once it was set up, but hopefully that will you know, pop off, whatever you want to call it. And both Fro and I will try and stay engaged with it. But also the goal there, you can submit mailbag questions too. There's a channel for that. We would love for you guys to interact with each other, pose ideas, uh, and just build the biggest, best, awesomest community that we possibly can. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Follow us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. Follow our YouTube channel, um, youtube.com search hardware knocks we will come up or and i already mentioned ig so i think we're done there we can finally cannonball into this mailbag have a ton of questions going to get to as many in under an hour as i can we're going to begin somewhere topical and it has to be with the lakers who we really haven't talked about as a standalone team on this podcast when we've done the exercises going through every team and whatever conference we've definitely talked about them, but for some reason they've provided a well of content. We've just decided to, you know, we're going to fucking talk about Denver and Utah and, and Charlotte because those teams are actually good. But Tyler asked about the Lakers and I'm going to use this as a segue into the Frank Vogel stuff, even though no one asked. Yes. Are the 2022 Lakers, the oldest team of all time? Um, they are not. And that major, major, major hat tip here to the ringer, Zach Cram, who looked this up before the start of the season. Uh, the he wrote the oldest group on record is a tie at an average age weighted by minutes played of 32.0 between the 97-98 Rockets and the 2000-2001 Utah Jazz. The Lakers' average age on the roster right now is 31 for the season. I think that's actually higher than they started uh, leading into the season, so that's kind of impressive when you really think about it. But so, no, they are not the oldest team in NBA history. I think one of the problems with their team is that they have these old by NBA standards players who are shoehorned into or one dimensional players who are all shoehorned into these outsized roles that they need them to play. And that leads us into the Frank Vogel news, which 
There was the report that his job is being evaluated on a day-to-day basis, followed up by the report uh, after they lost a game that they should not have. On um, That was a just, I call it the end of that. It was just an unmitigated you know, disaster for them. Westbrook gets benched down the tail end of the fourth quarter, doesn't speak to the media, doesn't even speak to the team. When he's leaving, it's noted that Vogel is going with the team on the road trip and it's still this evaluation process. A lot of people thought that game was going to cost him his job, especially it looked like he was kind of in fuck you, I'm leaving mode, or I'm not going to be here mode uh, at the end of the, or, or during the post-game press conference where he was asked about sitting Russell Westbrook and he said he was just trying to play the players that gave him the best chance to win. There was also a note from, I think this one was ESPN's Dave McMenamin. Sources told him that the coaching staff has been empowered by the front office to sit Russell Westbrook and play whoever they want. Uh, and it was also a decision that the coaching staff had been considering for weeks. And so there are, is a lot to unpack here. I caught a, I, I caught actually a lot of support on Twitter for something I wrote about the Lakers this week. I also caught a lot of shit because I don't need to sit here and necessarily defend the job that Frank Vogel has done. Uh, you can question his rotations, having mellow with a five the other nights, a disaster not being able to discern when to go big and when to go small. If you've been leaning on LeBron at the five a ton and when you could use Dwight Howard's rebounding in the game, sticking with Kent Bazemore and DeAndre Jordan too long this season. Um, there are issues that he's done. I think you can say this about all of Ogle's team. They're not especially inventive on the offensive end. That being said, I think a lot of LeBron teams are just going to be so heliocentric anyway. I don't know what you would expect necessarily a coach to do there. To me, this is not about Frank Vogel doing this bang-up job and the Lakers firing him anyway. This is just about the fact that this is the only move they could make. Now, they don't have trade assets. They can't trade a first until 2027 or 2028. That could be an asset to sort of bet against their future, but front offices don't have the job security necessary to be like, hey, look at this pick six years from now or whatever, and I'm, I'm going to be the one in charge of making it or trading it. They can't guarantee that. And that's where that pick loses, I think, a ton of value here. But what's happening now with the Lakers, it's also not its not on Frank Vogel. It's also not just on Russell Westbrook. The turnovers are a problem. The shot selection is a problem. His ability to make an impact off the ball is a problem. His defense, uh, for the most part, has been a major problem for them this season. He is, this season is a symptom of the disease that was the offseason. I think that's the best way to put it. They played their last best hand by giving up Kyle Kuzma, KCP, a first round pick. And then by extension, you know, you could throw Montrez Harrell's having a pretty good year. So you could throw him in there and say they gave up four assets, but he clearly wasn't a fit with the Lakers. They gave up three assets, consolidated it into one. And now that one asset in Russell Westbrook has proven to be the disastrous fit that everyone thought he was going to be. And even if you think he's still a questionable fit or they have ways to work it out. And again, the data with him on the court and LeBron and then Davis at the five is good. The sample's just so small because LeBron has missed 12 games this season. Anthony Davis is out right now. Those things are not Frank Vogel's fault, nor is the fact that Russell Westbrook leads the league in trending on Twitter airballs this season, I believe. So that's not on Vogel. The decision to trade for Westbrook is not on Vogel. And then you also had a Lakers team that and I'll this is basically verbatim what I wrote, but they then proceeded after trading for Russell Westbrook, making that consolidation trade for again, not a fit that looked necessarily promising, but was questionable at best. 
You then proceed to let Alex Caruso walk in free agency because there are no federal government loan program programs to supplement the salary and luxury tax bill for a fringe all-defensive candidate who has historically played well next to LeBron James. My and now we're in this position where you have all these older players, one-dimensional players shoehorned into these huge roles. Yes, it's good that Malik Monk has come on, but when you're looking at Vogel's lineups, and you can talk about Malik's Monk, Malik Monk's playing time previously, but and his front court rotations, all that shit. The alternatives are not just super sexy. You know, the fact that we were talking about at one point. Could Trevor Ariza really help them? And Trevor Ariza has not been good for like two or three years at this point. Like that was the state of the Lakers and the roster they built. They were just so overwhelmingly shallow and didn't have a lot of higher upside players. And oh, one of the higher upside players they do have, or the only higher upside player they do have is Talon Horton Tucker, has not played well for most of this year, has come on a little bit lately, shooting better on twos outside the restricted area. That's a big deal if he can come along because he really at the age of, I think, what is he, 20, 21, whatever he is, he's probably, in theory, because of his middle-rung salary, their best trade asset. Um, you have Russ, AD, and LeBron just making megastar money. Uh, my guess would be none of them are going anywhere, even though the Lakers should trade Westbrook. I just feel like that contract right now wouldn't do much for them, even if they could move it. Maybe that's something we revisit over the offseason when he's an expiring deal. After those three, Town Horton Tucker is your fourth-highest-paid player. Your fifth-highest-paid player is Kendrick Nunn, who's making like $5 million this season and, oh, just suffered a setback in his recovery from a knee injury and has, has, hasn't even played this season. These Those issues, just all of these issues, are not on Frank Vogel specifically. The, the fact of the matter is the Lakers just don't have anywhere else to turn other than Frank Vogel. You're not going to find LeBron because he was probably a driving force behind the uh, Westbrook trade. And more than that, is Rob Polinka going to fire himself? Because as the person in his position, yes, you need to listen to your superstars, but it would, whether he was on board with the Westbrook trade and this was his sort of baby or whether it was LeBron led, it's your job as this head of the front office, head of this, you know, basketball, the head of basketball operations for the team, essentially, you need to be able to kind of draw a line. If there's something that if it doesn't work out, could prove detrimental to your team. And that's what this was. And so knowing all of this, who, aside from literally everyone, could have possibly seen this Lakers shit show coming in the regular season. Everyone predicted that this was at least a possibility, if not predicted it outright. And so this isn't about Russ scapegoating him. And I don't think it's fair to scapegoat him. I, I, you know, look, it's probably tough. He deserves the other thing that I want to, I don't want to be too cranky here on this or spend way more time on this. We, it's, appreciate the game of basketball, consume it however you want, whether that's talking about trade, making snarky jokes on Twitter, really digging into the X's and O's, whatever, however you consume this game, however you like it, just consume it. That's, that's your prerogative. We got to get past the point where I feel like we try to paint something as a rosier picture than it is, or we're afraid to criticize someone. There's a human element behind all this. And I really do feel for us after being benched in the fourth quarter, Players have egos. He is a prominent player, at least by reputation. You have a frust frustrating day at work. Like people react in different ways in the moment. I don't, you know, he left, didn't talk to the team, whatever. I don't really read into that. But we are now in like past a half decade where it's, can we figure out if Westbrook can change? And he didn't never really needed to in Oklahoma City. 
Like we saw it in Houston. We saw it in Washington, even when he's coming on strong Washington to close the year. Now we've seen it in Los Angeles. Like there doesn't seem to be a very diverse player or someone who can handle and still be effective in a smaller role. I would welcome to be wrong. It's okay to say that. We don't need to pretend like Russ is necessarily a victim of all this, but he also shouldn't be the scapegoat, nor should Frank Vogel be the primary scapegoat. And I understand that's how these things work. Uh, Anyone who expects the team to side with the coach is, you know, just gravely mistaken, uh, deluded, thinking that that could happen. It also doesn't make it fair. And so the Lakers are just this mass of mistakes and the root cause of most of them is what happened over the offseason. And the people to hold responsible are the decision makers there because there are, it wasn't even just the Westbrook trade, but you decided to get rid of three really important rotation players, uh, Kyle Kuzma and KCP. They were two, I think they were the Lakers' two top players in total minutes played last year. They were also their two leaders in total three-point makes. You have Alex Caruso, who is so important to your defense uh, and then also has played well with LeBron James. And you just, those guys are gone. And you bet on Talon Horton Tucker instead, maybe that Talon Horton Tucker instead, perhaps that still works out. But this, everything comes back to the decision-making over the offseason. And that's what should actually be scapegoated. The problem is if there's no way to tangibly address that. And the Lakers don't even have alternate moves here unless some team is really high on that future first-round pick. And if you're them, you really do have to ask yourself, it's not going to be Miles Turner. It's not going to be Jeremy Grant. If you're giving up that pick, it's probably to get someone like Eric Gordon. It's probably to get someone like Karis LeVert, who I don't even think helps this team. Eric Gordon, would, I think he would definitely help this team, by the way. Uh, or it's probably to help get off Russell Westbrook's contract. So you're not even looking at the prospect of pulling off a blockbuster using that distant first-round pick. That's why Vogel is here on the chopping block. He is most guilty of not winning an unwinnable situation. And the Lakers' response is not one of a team addressing the actual issue, but one out of options. Let's move on from the Lakers. I, I'm, I'm sorry for that rant there. Uh, Connie asks, do you agree that the actual three most title-worthy teams in the East would each beat any team that comes out of the West in the finals? Or are you wrong, Winky Face? Appreciate the way that was raised, Connie. So I guess this really sort of depends on who your three most title-worthy teams in the East are. I'm assuming we default to... Brooklyn, Milwaukee, and is it Miami or Chicago there? Uh, is anyone prepared to make a case for, for anybody else? Is the three most worthy teams? I, I guess if the Sixers make a trade, but we'll talk about them in a second. Uh, I'm very high on Toronto. I don't know if I would put them as a top three option. I do think they could give both Milwaukee and Brooklyn problems in a playoff series, though. It's like Charlotte, Boston, no. The Knicks, fuck no. Atlanta, hell no. Yeah, so let's just say Miami, Brooklyn, Milwaukee here. Philly makes a trade, we'll relitigate it. Maybe I'm wrong on the Bulls, but between the Lonzo Ball injury, the Zach Levine injury, you don't have Patrick Williams, are you going to even have the incentive now to make a trade for Jeremy Grant or, or Harrison Barnes? Uh, but it's it's three of those four teams, so I don't know necessarily which ones Connie's re- referring to specifically. I don't know. The answer by this question is no, so I guess in your mind I would be wrong. I am taking Phoenix to win the title still. They are my pick. Uh, they also have the best record or second best record in the league right now. I'm all over the place with like these team stats just because so much has changed this season. But yeah, 35 and nine, best record in the NBA by far. Actually, not even close at the moment. I forgot the Warriors have been slumping for so long. Uh, they have the best record in the league against opponents above 500. Now you get into the interesting parts where it's are you taking? I'm going to focus on Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Miami, Chicago. Are those four teams? Are you taking 
which one, which of those four are you taking over Golden State? Uh, I think people come to believe Golden State might be a little bit overrated. Um, I think what really happened is we boarded the Andrew Wiggins as an all-star bandwagon way too quickly, and maybe we should futz around with Steph's substitution patterns. But I'd say that's an issue for another day, but it's actually an issue for another question. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't. I pick Golden State to beat Miami. I pick Golden State to beat Chicago. I don't know about Brooklyn or Milwaukee. I'd pick Milwaukee to beat Golden State. Probably. I don't know about Brooklyn. There's the Kyrie Irving stuff. What is going on with Kevin Durant? Uh, their defense is sort of crashing down um, a tad. So, yeah, I'm. I'm going to say that no. The, my answer to this question is no. If you think I'm wrong, that's fine. You can um, feel free to lay out your case at Dan Valley or hey, hop in the Discord, Hardwood Knox Discord. I think I called it the Hardwood Knox Chit Chat Association or some something weird like that. I am way overtired. I'm recording this at 3.30 in the morning Eastern Conference time. And the Discord chat was wrapped up around then too. Uh, let's get to, but yeah, that's a, that's a fun question. I do think if you want to talk about whether the East is better than the, than the West this year, at the tippy top, they might be now just because of the way Utah has been playing, but that, you know, you had Rudy Gobert was out for a bit. Donovan Mitchell misses a beat. So, you know, I, I would have said that Utah, Golden State, and Phoenix, then even Memphis a little bit, like give you more start, like more more title winning cachet than let's say Chicago, Miami, Milwaukee, Brooklyn does. But no, I think the top of the East now at this point is probably even more polarizing. So in sum, that's great news for the Heat, but I don't think the three most title worthy teams in the East are the three most title worthy teams, period. Mostly because I think Phoenix right now is the most title worthy team. And if I had to pick a second one to do it this way, I'm going to say Milwaukee at this point. Followed by Golden State, followed by Brooklyn, followed by Miami. I am on the verge of saying some really, I don't know if it's spicy or like bonkers, just irrational, irrationally optimistic stuff about the Heat. I'm at that point where I might, but I probably need to wait a little bit before I go there. Then we'll say, so what do I have? I have, um, I have Phoenix. I have Milwaukee. I'm going to put Golden State. Then I'm going to put. Brooklyn, Miami. I might put Utah over Chicago still, and then Memphis would be after that. So, like, that's how my top eight would shake out. Uh, top eight would shake out there if anybody cares. TJ asks, why is no one talking about Kevin Love for six man of the year? He has been spectacular this season. He has absolutely been spectacular this season. So, looking at, he's been, I don't want to say basically on fire, but ever since he exited, um, health and safety protocols earlier this season. He he has been an absolute monster for the Cavs. They've even had lineups. Like the, a lot of this was when Ricky Rubio was healthy, and so that helps you. Uh, but they've won the minutes where he and Lowry Marketing play without Jared Allen or Evan Mobley. So like Marketing and Kevin Love are those two bigs that are on the court. That's a that's a really huge deal. And I think just this is still a really good basketball player when healthy, who's now going uh, allowed to go up against super subs. But Kevin Love's past 25 games. 15.9 points, 6.9 rebounds, 2.2 assists in a little under 22 minutes. And he's shooting 43.4% from deep on seven attempts per game. This dude just makes plays, just the passing, his ability, the stuff that he can actually do on ball. And then coupled with that floor spacing, which is what you know Cleveland's half-court offense needed a ton this year. I absolutely think he deserves to be in this, the discussion for sixth man of the year. I just think that people are probably more inclined to focus on uh, others, really. And there, there are there's no shortage of candidates here. Tyler Hero is probably the favorite to win right now. Uh, he still had a good year. He started in 10 games, so I don't know how that makes some people 
feel Montres Harrell was getting some love at a point. We probably need to talk about Cam Johnson really sneaking into this. You could make a case for Gary Payton the second, though I don't think he has one per se over a, a Kevin Love. Uh, you know, I mean, like Pius Jones has had some really good minutes uh, for that. Does Alex Caruso sort of work his way into the fold, uh, or will he end up starting too many games? We might need to like nudge the the starter minimum up there. So there are no shortage of good candidates for this award. And I think that's probably why Kevin Love is not being mentioned. I also think it's because so much is being made of Cleveland first two bigs and Jared Allen and Evan Mobley that a Kevin Love is going to fall by the wayside a little bit, especially because he's not in the three big lineups as often as a Larry Markkinen is. Um, and so there would be that to consider as well. But look, if I were doing my sixth man ballot right now, I think Kevin Love might be too. He's in the top three for me. I can say that pretty pretty confidently, I think. Uh, TJ also asked, or no, that um, I believe that was a, the last question there. Sorry, excuse me. Um, Peja asked, what kind of stats, advanced or not, count more for Defensive Player of the Year prize? Who do you have as your most improved player? So for Defensive Player of the Year, I think a lot of it, the the voters specifically, like you hope that they're smart enough to kind of look at more than not it's so hard to quantify defense is what i'm getting at so you don't want them to rely necessarily just on stats you want to look at not even just the team performance but can you zero in on plays or a player's role on defense and so i I like looking at numbers uh like that if you're for more of the accessible ones i'll call it like i want there's rim protection if you're big and like that's a role that you're playing rudy gobert is great like how is he defending shots at the rim and you can trust that field goal percentage allowed more than you can on a what is you know Evan Mobley allowing opponents to shoot on him from three. The other thing that I really have valued looking at, um, or not really valued, but I do think it's interesting to sort of look like, okay, how does an opponent's shot profile change, especially if you're looking at a big when a player's on the court? And Rudy Gobert or Joel Embiid would be another example of this, where our team's not only shooting worse at the rim, but are they getting there less? Are they even impacting shots from um, floater range. You can look at how much better a team performs defensively with a player on the floor. I don't think that's an end all be all, but it is an interesting anecdote, especially when that lines up with either what you're watching and some of the other numbers you're looking at. Um, you can look at some kitchen sink metri- metrics, like if, if defensive points saved from NBA math, uh, dunks and threes has estimated plus minus and separates it into offense and defense. I also think B-ball index has been fantastic. They have, get, have so much granular stuff there that if you get a subscription, you can look at. And I've enjoyed checking out just matchup difficulty data that they have. How much time does you know a certain defender to spend uh, spend guarding the highest usage player on the the other team? Some of that can be impacted by the fact that technically, if you're a bad defender, teams are going to attack you more. So that could be why the player you're guarding is so high usage. But you can sort of spot you know fucking Kemba Walker ends up in at the top of that, you can sort of understand the, the outliers there. They also have like, um, you can check out their, their defensive roles. Are they defending the point of the attack? Are they more of a, a rim protector? And so that's going to help you there. They have even positional versatility. I don't think versatility has to inform effectiveness, but it can in certain instances. And they do have the catch all matchup difficulty metrics. You can see how a player is faring there, but there's no one. I, I look at a bunch of different things. I'm sure everyone does. And there's a lot of data out there. All of it is, if it's not imperfect, none of it is meant really meant to be just the end all be all. My most improved player, I think it's Miles Bridges. I know he hasn't been going scorched earth as often since the beginning of the season, but when you look at just the the context of his role 
and how much more difficult and different it can be with the on-ball stuff he's doing, the positional malleability he gives you on the defensive end, even the way he's moving off the ball. Uh, Yeah, it'd be nice if maybe he's hitting some of his easier shots more, but that is just someone who is affecting the game positively at almost, you know, on offense at almost every level and every mode of operation possible. And for someone who wasn't even sort of mentioned in the, this dude's going to get paid hanging into restricted free agency, 2022 conversation. Like that's just, he was always a player you talked about as rock solid or, you know, somewhat valuable, but not a potential, I'm going to be too generous, but like a fringe cornerstone, you know, who is the second most important player to the Hornets long-term? It might be my, I think it's probably miles bridges right now, depending on how you feel about a, you know, like James Booknight, just are you just assuming that because of his draft stock or how you feel about Gordon Hayward, Terry Rozier, yada, yada, yada. So I think it's him. John Morant deserves a lot of consideration here because I do believe he has made the hardest leap, which is that of us from a star to in MVP caliber, all NBA calendar, however you want to frame it. The three point shooting has been huge. I think he's played better defensively since he's come back from that knee sprain or at least has tried harder. But the, the way he's, you know, sort of advanced how he can affect the game on offense and make it harder on defenses because he's willing to shoot the three and he's hitting them at a, at a higher clip. But then there's also just the, you know, it's his, his floater, his decision-making in general, after he leaves his feet where he can make passes like that. And even just his playmaking in general is huge. That's a huge leap. And I don't think some, we, I don't know how much love he'll get because I think people already considered him because he was such an electric watch as that superstar but he is, he's officially there, and you're now leading a team like the Grizzlies into a top three or four record in the West. Desmond Bain deserves consideration, but I think I've gone back and forth in this on this, and I just don't think you can do it with year two players, given how much they're supposed to improve anyway. I do think it matters that he was hyper-efficient in a smaller role last year, so this is not just someone capitalizing on opportunity or who wasn't good before, and they are using him in a lot of different ways where he just wasn't really an on-ball option at all last year, and now he's doing more of that stuff. Tyler Hero certainly belongs here. Darius Garland would be a big one. Jared Allen, maybe. I, I don't know that people appreciate how much Jared Allen has branched out his game on offense to just make quicker decisions with the ball in his hands and have more directionality, I would call it, to his game, where it's not just rim running. It's not just these stop hooks. Like He can put the ball on the floor a little bit. He's less predictable with where he's going to finish or what he's going to do as a decision maker once the ball is put in his hands and so you know i i think that people don't really give him enough credit for that i don't think he'll win nor do i think he deserves a win but you can mention him i've seen jordan Poole sort of come up and i could probably see that dejounte murray is another one that i would consider uh, if you have any other options or favorites hit me hit us up you can let us know and i, I think my pick right now would be miles bridges or john moran i'm not firmly set on them I kind of want to go with John Moran. Am I brave enough to do it? But I'm Miles Bridges for me right now. Carrigan asks, what the heck is going on with the Utah Jazz? I'm a little bit upset you didn't use profanity there because that would be a worthwhile reaction to what's actually going on with the Utah Jazz. It's basically almost perfectly aligned with the start of the new year. So since January 1st, the Jazz are 3-7, and seven, so it's just 10 games. But they're 20th in net rating and 26th in points allowed per possession, 26th in the opponent effective field goal percentage. Now, Rudy Gobert missed a bunch of time during this stretch. And I think we've now, you know, we should know by this point how valuable he is on defense, but it's just this constant reminder. Uh, you've had some, you know, cold shooting by the Jazz's standards. Boyan Bogdanovich not shooting well from three over this stretch. 
Donovan Mitchell not shooting well in the games that he has played during this stretch. So it, that has contributed too, but it's been more so the defense. And this team is still struggling to keep opponents out of transition. And that's been a biggie. Uh, they are the second worst team during this stretch, an opponent field goal percentage allowed at the rim. I think the context there is Rudy Gobert's absence. And so how the center rotation looked with him not there. And then also just the frequency with which you're allowing opponents to get out in transition has been, look, probably problematic for much of this year, but they're during this 10 game stretch, they're 18th in the frequency with which opponents are getting out in transition. And they really suck at it off of live rebounds. Uh, and I don't know how much of that has to do with maybe Rudy Gobert finishing so many plays on offense around the rim that he's not going to be the first one back. And that's where the lack of athleticism really hurts you. And so I think that, you know, some of the shooting stuff will normalize and they've still been able to cobble together like a top 12 defense during this stretch. They'll ultimately be fine, but they're so dependent on Rudy Gobert. I do believe that this underscores uh, how much they really need to make a move on the trade market. And what I found interesting, and so I would still lean towards, can you get a more athletic wing who cracks, if not all of your closing lineups, at least the top eight or nine of minutes played in your, your playoff rotation, sort of regardless of matchups. So it's not just a Tory Craig here where he'll be valuable in certain instances and I'm kind of perking up an in Indy, by the way, right now. It's, it's someone who you'll actually slot into an eight or ninth uh, spot in, in your playoff rotation. I would still lean like a Josh Richardson type. There'd be more ideal ones. Yes, Harrison Barnes, Jeremy Grant, even a Marcus Smart. I don't know if the Jazz have the the asset equity to get those type of guys. Uh, Josh Richardson, I think they could, and that's someone that they absolutely should look at. Um, I also think uh, Marcus Smart would be if we have a question on him later. He's not had a great year, mostly on offense, though. However, I was listening to the Dunked On uh, pod, and I think they were citing what someone said on the Utah on the jazz locked on jazz pod. So I don't mean to sort of double aggregate or cite here. I just don't want to act like this is my idea. I really do try and give credit where if I'm listening to a team podcast, which I try to do a lot, um, it's a big part of covering the league or, or see something you want to credit people. So I apologize if I'm misciting that here. Uh, they, but the, the, the sentiment was that the jazz really just need a better help rim protector so that Rudy Gobert doesn't have to worry about what's necessarily happening around the basket all the time because him being pulled away from the basket is not actually the problem. And there'll be um, in-depth data that, that will support that. And I thought that was an interesting way to look at it. Um, and so if you're going that route, is a, does a Thaddeus Young help you at all in that situation? How much does the floor shrink? Would you ever consider playing him without uh, or with, excuse me, in tandem uh, beside Rudy Gobert? And if you're not, then you're committing to downsizing without Gobert on the court. And that's still only, uh, let's say we get to the playoffs, that's a 10 to 13 minutes per game proposition. How much does that really impact you if you're not going to play the two together? Maybe maybe it's a bunch. Who knows? Um, I've given thought he could probably play next to Chris Boucher, who's not, you know, he can be a little bit out of control, but he's also someone who, if you want Gobert to sort of camp out close to the basket, Chris Boucher can move on the outside and he'll close out um, like a borderline you know, bad out of hell, but it's, you know, it can be effective at points. So maybe they could look at someone like that. It's just tough because they don't, they have part of the Derek favors trade exception yet left. Um, and they do have some roster spot flexibility, but how deep are they willing to go into the tax and just who's available? Because again, while I do think that a Jeremy Grant would work really well here, even a Harrison Barnes, although if we're going to the rim protector stuff, like, you know, maybe you don't want Harrison Barnes as that guy, but I, 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 I just don't see them being able to cobble together the offer necessary to 
do anything at that level, at least to beat out other teams. We do have something interesting on this, though, in, in a minute. So I think that's what's wrong with the Jazz, Carrigan, and any Jazz fans that are listening to this. I don't, I, I don't think they have the personnel to address what's wrong with them on defense. But I do think what we've seen now has been exacerbated by the initial Rudy Gobert absence. And that's just the problem with these team-wide stats. And so you need to give context with which players are missing. And I know he's back now, and so the Jazz are still struggling. Uh, but I, I do think some of their shooters have, have gone cold, which hasn't helped them either. And the transition thing has just been a – this has been a problem like dating back to, to last year. Uh, but like this season is so tough to look at team-wide stats and then properly contextualize them just because we've gone through this long-ass stretch where so many – teams had players in and out of um, health and safety protocols and just rosters were changing on a nightly basis. It's important to try and distinguish what's meaningful and what's not, but the transition thing is not, you know, they were the team that didn't have anyone in health and safety protocols for the longest time. And the transition stuff is, is still an issue. And then just, the, I, I just think the lack of athleticism on the perimeter, if you want to call it the lack of athleticism behind Rudy Gobert, should you want some help rim protection, that's a big, bigger issue for them. And I, I do think they need to look at moving, you know, their offense is good enough to really withstand almost the app, like moving whoever. If you want to move uh, Bojan Bogdanovic, Jordan Clarkson, or Joe Ingles, you will be fine. But I, I do really think that you need to be aggressive here. Brett asks, when is Ben Simmons going to get traded? Uh, I know this is a reoccurring theme, and the we get updates from the previous updates to the updates before those that came from another batch of updates where there were no updates whatsoever. It seems like more was happening this week where there was the report that the Kings kind of emerged as, as favorites out of The Athletic, which then proceeded to debunk his own report by saying that wasn't true. I did listen to Daryl Morey going on a Philadelphia radio station this past Thursday, the entire interview, where the way he made it sound, and it could be posturing, but this has been my stance all along. I know people have been predicting a Ben Simmons trade. I would still be a little bit surprised if he gets moved because the way that Daryl Morey's always framed things he did during the radio interview is he wants to increase his team's championship odds, and it doesn't seem that he believes, uh, believes trading Ben Simmons um, and diverting him for a collection of non-stars is going to move the needle enough around Joel Embiid. And they owe it to Joel Embiid's window to get another star as part of a Ben Simmons package. In which case, if that's really his stance, the two outcomes I see are this. You either making a trade where De'Aaron Fox is coming back because he's the closest thing to a star that I think has really been floated in the Ben Simmons sweepstakes. You know, the Jalen Browns, the Damian Lillard, or the Bradley Beals, that's just not feasible at the moment. There's been no concrete ev evidence any of them are available. Maybe that changes in the 11th hour. I wouldn't expect it to. If that's the type of player you're looking for, the offseason is going to be the best time to move Ben Simmons or the most likely time. And so that's still my expectation. I kind of hope I'm wrong because I don't necessarily want to talk about this all the time. I also hope he just gets, gets sent somewhere out of the blue too, to just like a dark horse comes out. Maybe it's like this complicated three or four team trade that nets Philly a player and stuff that it wants. So they're giving up more stuff because teams are sending each other all these players and picks. That's how I'm rooting for this to end. I just don't ex expect it, expect it to end in that fashion. And the last note I will say on the, there've been so many different Kings packages being floated. There was the one where they were willing to give up Harrison Barnes and Tyrese Halberton and Buddy Heald effectively. And I think maybe picks were mentioned in that. I'd be shocked if they were offering that. So I don't even want to go into detail. The one that I found more fascinating that the athletic reported and then subsequently debunked Sacramento will be willing to take on Tobias Harris and a Ben Simmons deal. So at that point you're going De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, Harrison Barnes for Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris. I don't think that's the worst outcome in the world for either side because De'Aaron Fox still gives you that like star type player upside. And then Buddy Heald and Harrison Barnes are fantastic fits for, for Philly. Uh, Harrison Barnes is going to give you more on defense than Tobias Harris. 
maybe you trust Pete Tobias Harris's ball skills more, but he's just, you know, he could benefit some quicker decision-making and maybe a team that plays faster than the, the Sixers do, although I, he's not particularly explosive, so he's sort of part of that sloth pace, the way that the, the Sixers play. Anyway, for the Kings, I don't, here's where I'm at. I'm a De'Aaron Fox truther and believer, and so that's why I would view him as a player from Philly that I would take back as the primary asset in Ben Simmons trade. You could make the argument, though, that the four years and 134-plus million left on his deal is not a net positive asset. You can also make the case that the two years and 40 plus million of the Buddy Heald's deal is also not a net positive asset. And so I don't view that necessarily as an egregious cost because De'Aaron Fox is the only player in that whole kit and caboodle that would be viewed as a long-term asset really to the kid or, or as a surefire big picture anchor long-term. And I think even when you look at this roster, I wouldn't, for the Kings, I wouldn't trade uh, Harris. Uh, I wouldn't trade Rashawn Holmes. I wouldn't trade Tyrese Halliburton. I'd be open to moving Fox in a deal like this, or I just wouldn't trade him. I'm not looking to sell De'Aaron Fox. So those are the three players you're keeping. It's not healed. It's not Barnes. So by giving him up in this, taking back Tobias Harris's, if you want to call it bad money, or just two years, where again, you have him with Ben Simmons, you have him with Tyrese Halliburton, not the primary person tasked with creating. Doesn't give you a true wing defender, but that's your problem now. Anyway, uh, I, I, I don't hate, I don't hate that outcome for a second. It would be justifiable. Would I do it in a heartbeat? I probably would because the kids, the kids, the kids, the kings need to do fucking something. Like, let's pick a direction. You've just been in this state of useless existence for far too long now where you won't pick an actual angle. So I probably would do, do that deal. And I just don't, I also think the benefit there where people think the kings are giving up a ton. I'm not, I don't think Tobias Harris is watched. He could be a fine player. Overpaid relative to what he does. Sure, that's not his fault he's on that contract. I want all players to get paid, but it has become a cumbersome deal relative to what he does. That being said, if taking him on and then giving up these players spare you from having to give up a bunch of picks and swaps, that's also a benefit to working the deal with it within that context. Clayson says on the Ben Simmons front, I have a trade idea. Ben Simmons to Utah for Mike Conley and Jordan Clarkson. Thoughts? I think this framework is interesting in the sense that Mike Conley is still really good and would help Philadelphia out a ton. Gives you someone who can hit jumpers off the dribble. Gives you someone who can run the offense in crunch time. Gives you someone who's worse than Ben Simmons on defense, but when you just look at point guard defenders, especially at his size, still just one of the non-crappier ones, if you want. I, like, I wouldn't pick Mike Conley for all defense or say that he's like this hugely positive player there. But when you have him surrounded in lineups, if there's like a, if, if Thibel's on the floor with him, uh, maybe Danny Green is feeling healthy that day. You know, Joel Embiid is behind him. So he's, it's worked out with Rudy Gobert in Utah. Maybe starting Seth uh, and Conley in the backcourt gets a little wishy washy. And, you know, playing Conley with Jordan Clarkson could have serious issues there. Uh, but, you know, how much better is Donovan Mitchell defensively than, than Seth Curry? Uh, maybe it's maybe it's appreciably. I, perhaps I haven't watched enough Seth Curry on defense. I do think he was kind of underrated in that element during his time in Dallas, and then it sort of faded a bit since he's come to Philly. The framework makes sense. I wouldn't do this deal if I'm Philly, though, because Mike Conley is in his age 34 season, I believe. And so you have to start questioning how healthy is he going to remain, how much longer he's going to play at a higher level he can't be just the only primary asset you're getting back. Whereas I, I, to me, you're going to have to include at least a pick and a swap. Like, and they're looking at, I think it's 2026 is the earliest pick that they can convey right now. So you could do a 2025 swap pending other obligations, a 2026 pick, 2027 swap, and then 2028 pick. You could structure, I'm not saying give up two swaps and two picks, 
that's what you could do. I still don't think that would be enough. You're not getting out of this deal, I don't think. It's going to have to be Mike Conley and Royce O'Neal would have to be the framework for me. I, I don't think that uh, Philly would value a, a Boyan Bogdanovich in this type of a deal. You're not, and if you're Philly, you're not getting Donovan Mitchell. And you have no use for Rudy Gobert, nor do I think you would get him. I do think the, the Mike Conley idea is an interesting framework. Now, uh, I don't like Ben Simmons in Utah specifically. He's exactly the type of defender they need, but playing him next to Rudy Gobert is a lot different than playing him next to Embiid because of the way that uh, Embiid is, can still pop out beyond the arc or has an off-the-dribble game or you can sh- uh, take shots from mid-range. That's not Rudy Gobert's game. And Ben Simmons then shrinks the floor a ton for you. I do think Utah would still have the, the talent and thermonuclear shooting and a boy on Bogdanovich, Joe Ingles when he's on, uh, Donovan Mitchell when he's on to, to navigate it. But you are really trusting your offense a lot there. And I would wonder how effective is Rudy Gobert when, when he said he's crazy. Like, what if Ben Simmons is running a pick and roll with Rudy Gobert? Uh, what does that necessarily look like? Perhaps it looks a lot better just because the Jazz can always ensure they'll have three shooters around them when that happens, but I would be very reticent for Utah to do. I, I, I think it would be Mike Conley, Royce O'Neal, and some kind of combination of picks and swaps. I'll throw that back to Jazz fans or Clayson at large. Are you doing that? That's the cost. Mike Conley, Royce O'Neal, and up to two picks and two swaps. I don't know if that's too much. I don't know if that's what uh, they'd be willing to give up. If it's one pick and two swaps, two picks and one, whatever the case, but you're not getting out of that trade without giving up first-round picks just because of Mike Conley's age. Ethan Jacobs asks, what is the Hornets' best defensive lineup? So speaking of talking about we need to properly contextualize stuff that's going on, don't look now, but the Hornets, since December 23rd, which is, you know, uh, excuse me, uh, a sample size of 12 games, have the third best defense in the league. There's been some... They've had different personnel on and off the court, on and out of the rotation that time. The biggest difference for them, though, is the interior presence has been better. I think they're getting a little bit lucky uh, in some regards. Just, you know, opponents shooting 62.3% at the rim. Is that, you know, looking at the lineups and their center rotation, is that something that actually lines up with the talent? I would say no, but they're not getting lucky on opponent three-point shooting, shooting, which would be something to consider there. They've also just done a, a much better job in transition, even though they're still letting teams get out in transition a ton. Part of me thinks that there's just aberration here, but what the biggest difference that I've noticed from them in the games that I've seen during this stretch, they feel more likely to get a defensive rebound, which is a not insignificant deal for Charlotte if you've watched them at all this season. And so that just combined with you know smarter rim protection, I think um, you know them dealing with some of their players being out, especially not having Lamelo balls passing as a a crutch influence some of the lineups that James Borrego was playing and you had guys who might play harder on defense a little bit. I do think just their uh, like general activity away from the ball to where it doesn't feel like they're going to get burned every five seconds on the next pass by that next player has been good. Will the defensive rebounding sustain? This is all to say their best defensive lineup. I want to look at only this stretch that we've seen over the last 12 games and some of just the most used combinations. The two that stand out to me, and by the way, the starting lineup, their preferred starting five, just statistically, has been rock solid defensively all year, round average, and that's held basically true during this stretch. But some of the framework here that intrigues me is the, I think I'd go with the, this is a smaller lineup, but it's played 22 minutes during this stretch of Hayward, Rozier, Bridges, Cody Martin, and PJ Washington. 
uh, defensive rating of 60 during their time on the floor. And they're one of uh, Charlotte's five most used lineups during this stretch, opponent field goal percentage of sub sub 50 or sub 49 actually. And they're grabbing 74.1% of defensive rebounds when they're on the floor. The other one that I think is interesting, you have Plumlee on the court with Hayward, Rozier, McDaniels, and LaMelo Ball. Uh, a 92-6 defensive rating, which is, I don't want to say it's more sustainable, but it's just more normal. And I think when you look at the players that are part of this one, knowing the way um, that Plumlee's minutes pan out, who he plays with, and then knowing that LaMelo Ball's this, you understand the quality of competition that they're going up against. And that group has been grabbing 80.8% of their defensive rebounds um, during this stretch. When you're looking to the season at large and you just want to going through their like most used lineups and who has the best defensive rating, uh, like I said, the starting lineup is it's actually dead average. That is hysterical. 50th percentile in, in defensive rating. Uh, the the Lamel Ball, Hayward, Oubre, Bridges, Plumlee combination is in the 64th percentile of defensive efficiency. I think just of their most used combinations this season, the one that's been most successful statistically has been the Lamella Ball, Rozier, Jalen McDaniels, Hayward, and Plumlee Cup. And so it's the one we just cited before. I'm, I'm just going to roll with that then because I was only thinking back to, to this stretch. I know Jalen McDaniels can be all over the place on, on certain games, but he's proven to be valuable to this team. And I also think we've started to see more often why the Hornets paid Terry Rozier. Uh, including on, on offense for, for certain stretches. I still don't know if I agree with the money that he got, knowing what the, the cap space landscape is this summer, but that is my answer. It's LaMelo Ball, Terry Rozier, Jalen McDaniels, Gordon Hayward, and Mason, uh, Mason Plumlee. Uh, I'm sure Kanata Edwards used to be the co-host of the Lockdown Hoarders podcast and is now a podcast producer at CBS Sports. Fantastic guy who covers the um, NBA at large, but also the Hornets specifically. I'm sure he would disagree with me and just have a better answer there. But that is that is my answer. That was an interesting question, Ethan. Thank you. THM786 asks, where does Anthony Edwards put himself in terms of offensive and defensive efficiency? Uh, hopefully this question will satiate everyone who thought that we crapped all over Anthony Edwards by not having him higher up in our top 10 players under 25 rankings when uh, ordering them by their career outlook. I think I had him 12th and Fro had him 10th. So I will say, just numbers aside, the thing that I've enjoyed watching, I know there have been some turnover issues at points with Anthony Edwards relative to the what his role has been and what he's doing on offense. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. There's just like more patience there for him and an ability to sort of manipulate the pace of, or at which he plays or at, at which the defense plays when he's in the half court. There's, there's like more of a methodical surgicalness to his game or surgical. I don't know. I don't even know how to frame it, but just, that's the sense that I've gotten from watching him this year where it felt like he was more on this just like, I don't even know what the word, like explosive, like always on mode last year. I've been very impressed with his uh, willingness to let plays develop or really just develop plays uh, with the ball in his hands himself by, by being more patient. He is, when you want to look at some of the kitchen sink metrics, he ranks 46th in offensive points added um, from NBA math, 244th in defensive points saved. When you look at dunks and threes estimated plus minus, he's in the 90th percentile on offense and 67th percentile on defense, 87th percentile of estimated plus minus overall. I do think the Timberwolves are the best team in the league at forcing turnovers defensively. I do think Anthony Edwards can be a part of that. I think that the off-ball uh, activity level is can really muck up certain possessions. I don't know where I would peg him defensively. Is he above average, average, below average? There are games that he has where I look at him and I'm like, this is someone who technically had a best player in the league potential because of what he's able to, to do in theory defensively. I just don't know if you 
if that's someone who, I don't even want to call it locked in, but is he going to be as effective or ubiquitous, ubiquitous enough on that end? I think what's also interesting from, we've seen his efficiency sort of climb on twos, is finishing around the rim, getting the basket a little bit less, but it's right where the finishing was last season. What I think has been huge for the Timberwolves, it'd be nice if that off the dribble three he takes a bunch would come along, but you got to give him credit for really just blat, like torching the net on his catch and shoot looks, which I think has made the Wolves offense one. They don't have guys who can hit threes on a consistent basis. He is part of that at points, but I do think it's alleviated some of the pressure on the Wolves with how he would fit off the ball. He's posting an effective field goal percentage of 64 on catch and shoot opportunities of the 108 players who are taking it more than 3.5 spot up looks per game. He ranks ninth in effective field goal percentage behind Tyler hero is the one directly in front of him. And he's right ahead of Norman Powell. That's growth for him there. And I think it makes him, I don't know if I want to call it more plug and play, but more scalable. And so there are more player types that you could put around him. And there are more ways that you could sort of build out your team because of this improvement from him. Uh, just a fantastic player. Like I said, uh, he is, he is great. And I would not, not that I want it. Well, maybe I would want to fast forward two or three years from now, just because of this, pandemic ridden world we live in but who knows whether anything will be better I, i'm anxious to see where he'll be in the in the league uh league's individual pecking order over the next couple of years bulls fan asks statistically speaking how good is io Desumo defensively again defensive metrics here need to come with a grain of salt but i am here to please he's three 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 333rd in defensive points saved um that's he's 67th though out of 118 first year players in NBA Math database. That's firmly in the middle. He's in the 45th percentile of estimated plus minus defensive uh, metrics. What I will say, and so this is where B-ball index comes in handy and I think could really help you back up what you're seeing on the eye test. I would describe his defensive energy as just frenetic or controlled chaos because it's just like always on and looks out of control, but there is composure there and there's a rhyme or reason of what what he's doing. It's like if it's like I don't know, there's like an unhingedness to the way he's playing, but it's so deliberate and composed it works. And so you can I I, I watch that and I just see his ability to sort of fight through guys or cover um just all these sort of point of attack weapons or just wings slash guards. So I checked some stuff at B ball index. Mostly lines up. There were a few things that I was surprised by that he was worse at or better at than I would have expected. But Mostly lined up with what I saw. And so I'll frame it this way. The value he adds as an on-ball defender and then a ball, then defending ball handlers against a screen. There are only nine players or eight other players who are matching the value he adds, again, as an on-ball defender overall, and then when defending a ball handler against the screen. There are only eight other players who have the same or better matchup difficulty level um, while adding as much value as an on-ball defender, or again, when defending a ball handler on screens. Those eight players are, I will that though, Isaac Okoro, Matisse Thibel, George Hill, Davion Mitchell, Mike Conley, Drew Holiday, and Fred Van Fleet. Fred Van Fleet been a monster this year, by the way. We've definitely mentioned that on this podcast before. Io is also easily the second youngest player in the league to add as much value as an on-ball defender and, and ball handler against screens in as much playing time as he's had on the court. Um, Isaac Okoro, who I mentioned in this, is the, the the only other player who is younger in doing that. So he has been a net positive, again, just as a general on-ball defender. And w- when you're looking at him having to defend against the screen when he's on the ball handler per B-ball index, and his matchup difficulty is in the 76th percentile. And so 
those players that I just mentioned are the only other players who match all those those vitals of his in his in as much playing time. So I would assume oh good. And I wonder if that changed the way the Bulls were thinking at the trade deadline, by the way, is the is the only thing I'll say. I do think the injury to Lonzo Ball, stuff going on with Zach Levine, maybe that shifts their thinking a little bit. They're still just ultra win now. So maybe it doesn't. I'm not saying you move Io, but does he make you feel a little bit better about potentially moving Patrick Williams? I think the scope of Williams' role when you're looking at him on offense. Uh, probably not going to put the same type of rim pressure on defenses that DeSumo will, but could have more ball skills. I still don't know that it makes you feel a lot more confident. That being said, I'm just wondering if that impacts their thinking at all. And so you could say, well, if, it, if we move Patrick Williams and we're getting a Jeremy Grant or Harrison Barnes right now, you still have DeSumo, who's just like this guy who can guard one through three. Anyway, Jake asks, could you tell me what's up with Steph? He really isn't in his shooting slump anymore, but he's barely touching the balls. He's just letting the team sort of gel together since Clay is back and Dre is out for now. Uh, I posed this question to a number of people, so two people, I should say, and they gave me some version of the same answer. And then Tommy Gunn tweeted, Steph's new substitution pattern makes it so he has to play 39 minutes in any close game. It also gives GSW less frequent blowouts because he's not demolishing teams at the end of the first and third quarters like he used to to stretch the lead. Stop this shit. It isn't working. So the Warriors have basically rested Steph in every quarter of the season is, is what they've done so that he could play in it rather than him playing you know like the entire third quarter as he used to. And so when you look at his effective field goal percentage in the fourth this year, it's at 54. Last year, it was at 63.2. So you're looking at a 9.2 point swing in the wrong direction. He's also averaging 8.4 minutes in the fourth for the first time. That's his highest, I should say, since 2013, 2014. I, that seems to be the general idea of this pattern, but I also just wonder because it's coming later and after he has played a little bit in the third, it's easier to shoulder the heavier workload in the third when you're coming off of, okay, you had a break in the second. It was also halftime. Now you're coming out, setting the world on fire. And as Tommy pointed out, extending leads in the third. And it seemed like it maybe could work at the beginning of the season. It's not working now. I don't know if that's at the root of what's going on. When you look at his touches, there's not like this overwhelming difference. I do think there's an element of him probably trying to get a feeling out process with, you know, he's really trying to get the ball to Clay Thompson at points since, since Clay has come back. Um, there's been the, the Andrew Wiggins experience um, for both better and worse this season. And there's always been the propensity to sort of have Steph move off the ball because of the pull that he has and the danger that he poses in that role. So I, there have been games or quarters this season where it does feel like he's gone way too long without, touching the ball or should we say dominating it i also think that the warriors offense in general is a problem because you do you have enough knockdown shooters around him do you have enough secondary creators and the answer is no regardless of what you think about andrew wiggins or jordan Poole, the answer is just no even when you think about clay thompson and so that just makes it easier for defenses to make concessions and it's always not always made it easier but like the way you're able to attack him off the ball if you're not as worried about the teammates that actually have the ball in their hands that is going to hurt steph that's sort of where i'm at with this uh, I don't know if the substitution pattern changes anything specifically. I do think that there will be more stretches where he's allowed to dominate when you look at that substitution pa substitution pattern. And my my gut would say it just makes more sense to have him play uh, the entire third quarter, rest at the beginning of the fourth so that he's fresh rather than trying to play him even more in the in the fourth quarter at this point. The dude is in his middle middle 30s. It's It's at least worth considering and, and tinkering with from from here on would would be my gut to say Uber next question asks 
Realistic trade targets for the Mavericks, including or not including KP. If you're going to trade Kristaps Porzingis, who has played, who's had some real moments over the past, real good moments over the past few weeks, I think it needs to be for like a huge swing. And I just don't know who that type of player is that would be worth doing it for. Um, would you do it for, I, I don't even know, Gordon, like a Gordon Hayward swap with Kristaps Porzingis, if that's something Charlotte was interested in. Um, I still think Dallas would probably be looking even a cut above him. Is it a DeJounte Murray trade? Does he qualify as that? Why would the Spurs even trade DeJounte Murray? But it's that sort of type player. You're not giving him up for Miles Turner. You're not giving him up for Jeremy Grant, like those types of players. And those are the types of deals, though, that I think are most – that's the ceiling, I should say, not most likely on the Mavs because they just don't have the, the asset juice to get into the discussions for the highest end of players. They can't convey a first-round pick until 2025 right now. Jalen Brunson's playing fantastic, but he's also a free agent this season. I think there'll be teams that value his bird rights because maybe they don't have cap space, or even if you do have cap space, his cap hold is so damn low that you could just carry it, have a crap ton of cap space, spend it, and then go back over the cap and, and pay him. There's aren't a lot of great there are, there are no great teams that have cap space this summer. I think Memphis is the only like actually good team that's laid to have cap uh, cap space. And Memphis doesn't need Jalen Brunson, at least doesn't need to pay Jalen Brunson. So that would be something to consider. And that makes it tough. I do wonder if Dallas, who was cited as a, a favorite in a report that I would call bunk. I don't like to, you know, shit on people's reportings. I understand it's a, it's a hard job, but there's also just stuff like, come on, no, they're not because, and then Dwight Powell was mentioned as like the, one of the primary go backs in the deal. I do wonder if Miles Turner's injury makes him more gettable for Dallas this season since Indy seems so unlikely to move some bonus. I almost think the Pacers are now just going to hold on to both of them, try and flip Miles Turner over the offseason where his value will either be higher because he'll came back and played well or or about net neutral. But by dangling a first or maybe the Pacers want Brunson, I still wouldn't – I don't know that I would give – well, I shouldn't say that. I'd probably give up Brunson for Turner. I'm not going to lie. It's part of like the the package there even though that really does hurt your shot creation pecking order still. Uh, I think Jeremy Grant would be the ceiling on it. Is it Jeremy Grant or Miles Turner is the ceiling for the target, both of whom I wouldn't mind, by the way, in Dallas. Those feel like the best type of players they might uh, be able to get, and you need Detroit to like Jalen Brunson. They are going to have cap space, so they could just pay him. Like I said before, though, cap hold is so low that you could carry him, spend your cap space elsewhere, get a lot better, and then go back and, and pay him while going over the cap. Is Detroit at a point in its development where it should be thinking like that? Probably not. I would be very tantalized by a Jalen Brunson, Cade Cunningham pairing, though, as your primary ball hitter. So if they like him and you're willing to include another first-round pick or maybe it's a swap, uh, could there be a deal to be made there? Some other – those are not the only targets I have. I, tr I wanted to go off some of the beaten paths, but I do have to recycle some of the greatest hits. Uh, I think Eric Gordon would be a great fit for this team. He is rim pressure in addition to being able to hit super deep threes. And that's a player type the Mavericks could really need because it's like what the best version of Tim Hardaway Jr. could be, except his game is stalled out before the rim more than that. And I think when you look at Dallas, who, by the way, fourth in points allowed per possession or it's sixth, right? They're the top seven in points allowed per possession this season. That is, wow. Uh, they've gotten a little bit lucky. Opponents are shooting 32.4% on above the break threes. I don't think that's something that holds for them at the moment. Still, they've done a relatively good job of how they've structured their defensive shot profile. When you really look at it, they're seventh in location, effective field goal percentage, which for anyone who doesn't know, 
If this team allowed the league average field goal percentage from each location, what would their opponent's effective field goal percentage be? Uh, they rank seventh in, in expected, and they are in actuality 10th. So it sort of lines up perfectly there. And they've done a better job of limiting the, the volume at the rim than I thought they were going to. And they really do seem to focus on getting guys out of those above the break threes and forcing them into maybe, you know, it, I do think the way that they defend sometimes would leave them susceptible to give up more corner threes. That being said, I think it also helps uh, them force coax opponents into more mid-range jump shots. And against a lot of teams, that's really going to help you. Uh, I digress there. But Gordon, I think, is someone you can acquire. He's expensive, but he's gettable for that reason. I don't. I wouldn't give up Jalen Brunson for him, but I give up my 2025 first. I probably need to get off some bad money in that deal. Are they willing to do it for seconds or swaps, or is there something else that could happen there? I don't know, but that's someone I'd be looking at. Uh, I already mentioned Miles Turner, Jeremy Grant. I think this is another recycled name, but Karis LeVert, quietly been on a tear. And I think, look, he ranks, this is per B-Bell Index. He's in the 96th percentile of overall shot creation and the 74th percentile of pull-up three-point shot making, the latter of which has been fueled by his his play over the past 20 games or so where he's been magnificent, hitting his catch-and-shoot threes at above a 40% clip during that stretch too. That's someone who I think could help the Mavs a ton. Does he help them more than Eric Gordon? I don't know. I think the ceiling on him helping them is higher than Eric Gordon because EG is not going to be someone you trust to necessarily slow down and run pick and roll. EG is also just a comfier fit alongside Luca. So those are my two favorite ones so far that we've seen. Jordan Clarkson is someone I would keep an eye on. Uh, he gives you real shot creation, even though it's not always great shot creation. He can make stuff happen when he attacks inside the arc. We'll settle for some threes, not putting a ton of pressure on the rim or getting to the foul line, but can still juice up your secondary offense, which if you want to play Brunson and Luka together, like you sort of need that guy who maybe you stagger with them and Clarkson would help them there. Would Utah have interest? You know, we're talking about a trade target for uh, them to maybe have like, can he play next to Regal Bear or beef up their center rotation or help their secondary rim protection, depending on the opponent. Are they willing to build something around Maxi Kleba there? Can you withstand giving up Dorian Finney-Smith in this deal? Uh, th those are things that they could look at. I love the idea of a Derek White with this team, someone who could defend, also give you some creation. He's gotten better as sort of a, a shot creator this season after a really slow, sh slow start, not sharp, excuse me. Norman Powell, would be another guy. I don't think you probably have the 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 assets necessary to get him, assuming Portland would even move him. He's on the smaller end, but he gives you some pure rim pressure. Um, not and, and the floor spacing. It's kind of like a I don't want to say a younger version of of Eric Gordon, but like they would address a lot of the same issues where neither one of them you would trust necessarily slow down and run the offense. But if you just need them to create their own shot with either a burst of speed or from a standstill and trying to attack the rim. They can do that, or they can camp out from beyond the arc. And I do think Powell would, you know, bring some frenetic energy uh, after you know missed shots from opponents. Whether he grabs a rebound or he's just uh, willing to run the floor there if Dallas uh, lets him, and he's just sort of a little bit more plug and play than Karis Levert to me too. Uh, and then Kyle Anderson would be sneaky. Just what do the Grizzlies want for him? Because he's going to enter free agency. His role has been marginalized a little bit with this team being so well and, and having other players to soak up minutes at the three and the four uh, could could Dallas get him and I'm not giving up a first round pick for him I'm not giving up Jalen Brunson for him and he's also not this lockdown defender doesn't necessarily improve your floor spacing or rim pressure but he's like 
good with the ball in his hands, where he can just get to his spots, set up plays, and make good decisions for others. And that just might be someone the the Mavericks could use. And you know, the pace at which they play for some of the times anyway is perfectly suited for for Kyle Anderson. I just don't know. They have some pretty easy salary yet to match. Would you give up Maxi Kleba for Kyle Anderson, who works in Memphis? Uh, I don't. I don't know that I give up Dorian Finney Smith. I probably wouldn't. Uh, yeah, that would be another name. I think my favorite ones on this list, let me give you my top three trade targets for the Mavericks. And I think some of them are going to be greatest hits. Derek White, Karis LeVert, and Eric Gordon with Kyle Anderson pushing a very, I try to balance the real realism here with the higher end outcomes. So by juggling those two factors, I'm going to say Karis LeVert, Eric Gordon, and Kyle Anderson, just because I don't think the Spurs make a big midseason trade along those lines. But Derek White would be in there too. So my top four, I lied. If anything, I, I gave you extra work there. Uh, this one is a very easy question because I can just look it up. Michael asks, what teams have the top net rating in the league this season? So there's the caveat that these team-wide stats are just so skewed based off the availability of players. I do think when you look at the top five, though, it lines up. Phoenix is first, Utah is second, Golden State is third, Miami is fourth, Milwaukee is fifth, and we'll go seventy. Cleveland is sixth and Memphis is seventh. And I just wanted to mention that because those two teams have just obliterated expectations this season, been absolutely uh, absurd. I did want to look at who had the biggest difference between net ratings and wins versus losses, but I had looked at it earlier this season and looked at it again. And just the changes that I saw leading me believe that was too influenced by single game implosions or just like that revolving door of availability from before Christmas through the start of the new year. So I decided to just look at which teams have the highest net rating and wins to go off this question. I hope you're interested in this, Michael. Utah is first. San Antonio is second. Minnesota is third. Milwaukee is fourth. Dallas is fifth. Golden State is sixth. And Memphis is seventh. So Golden State, Memphis, and Utah, there's some real consistency there just because their net ratings are... Uh, they're in the top seven of both net ratings and wins and the net ratings overall. Uh, always good to look at that. I do think this one's tough because you have games like, you know, think about OKC's being skewed by that Memphis loss. It deserves to be, but one game can, one blowout can impact those a lot. And then also the revolving door of availability for a lot of these teams, I really do think harshes the vibe. If anyone cares and you want to look at which teams have the worst net ratings this season, I have a pretty uh I have a pretty good idea that if I gave you guys just any random person who's listening to this podcast, I give you seven guesses, you'd probably guess the, the bottom five teams in net rating. But they are Orlando at 30, Detroit at 29, Houston at 28, OKC at 27, New Orleans at 26. I will say Pelicans have been playing better over the past few weeks, and they're, they've been fun to watch. Here's hoping Zion comes back soon. Last few questions. We're getting through this probably not in under an hour, but uh, this – this will be the last question from Alex. We'll get, we have two others that I'd like to tackle with Adam, so we'll save them for next time. Alex asks, are the Celtics better off without Marcus Smart? My answer is no. And even when you look at their just on-off swings this year, they're better on both offense and defense statistically with him. He still is hugely impactful on the defensive end. Do I think he's irreplaceable to them at this point? No, because of his limitations on offense. I, I do sometimes feel like he's miscast. Uh, they do need him to run more pick and rolls than I think he should. Even though I've kind of been impressed with, I went back and watched some of his uh, turnovers like off of assists and assists this year. I've, I've been impressed with a lot of the passes that he has made, but he's averaging 0.62 points per possession as a pick and roll ball handler. That is not good. And it's down from 0.9 last year. 
His turnover percentage on pick and rolls is, I would call it detrimental. He is turning the ball over on 22.5% of his pick and roll possessions among 88 players who have run at least 100 pick and or finished 100 pick and roll possessions this year. That's the ninth highest turnover percentage in the league, just ahead of Russell Westbrook, who is the 10th highest. So that's not a place you want to be. And I think because of how gummy Boston's half-court offense can be at points, uh, there's also the fact that teammates have missed a lot of quality shots, and they're not necessarily always off Marcus Mar passes, but that would be something to consider here. I will say his own shooting, being on a de- I, I know people have thought he's not a great shooter to begin with. It's on the decline from last season. He's been fairly reliable the past two seasons. There are 176 players who've attempted more than 50 off the dribble jumpers this season. Marcus Smart's effective field goal percentage, a whopping 25.4, ranks. 176 out of 176 players. This is a problem. I would consider moving him if I if I were them. I'd be looking at selling if I were the Celtics, not just to duck the tax, but we have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. How can we shake this up around the, the margins? I don't know that Smart would be the first one I'm looking to move. There's there's Dennis Schroeder, obviously. There's a report they were looking to move Al Horford. He's been rock solid for them this season. I just think they'd probably prefer not to have to pay him on like $14.5 million to go away or keep him at his full number next year. Josh Richards is someone I, I would look to move uh, just because can you give Neesmith more minutes or do you like Langford? Or there's just something to sort of change the wing rotation, get someone who's either going to help you as a floor general, help you put more pressure on the rim. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. Just be uh, Josh Richards has been one of their better shooters this year. So I don't know if they can afford to move him, but they do need shooting in general, which Josh Richardson provides. They, they also need someone who puts pressure on the basket with the ball in his hands and just an overall floor general which Josh Richardson is not. I would also argue Marcus Smart is not filling either of those three boxes right now. And can you look to either recoup a player as a better fit or just assets that help you make the next move later if it's picks and prospects? I'd love to see Marcus Smart in Utah. I think that would be a general uh, like destination for him. I don't know if, like, if Joe Ingles and a future pick and swap and Jared Butler, does that get it done? Uh, the Celtics could probably use Jordan Clarkson along the same framework. I don't know if they would view the two years left on his deal as an asset or not. He doesn't help with their rim pressure issue. Uh, Atlanta would be a fun destination for him. Uh, just imagine him and Trey Young playing together and do you worry about him during the minutes where Clint Capella is on the floor, per, perhaps, but that's maybe something they could make work. There are a lot of teams that could use a, a Marcus Smart and maybe his shooting would come up in a better situation. I think his shooting, this is more of an aberration than the past two years is how I would frame it with him when you're looking at that efficiency. That will do it for me. I hope you enjoyed this mailbag. Continue to send us questions on the Discord. The link is in the podcast description, or you can DM me at Valley F-A-V-A-L-E. Looking forward to talking with you guys in there. Please join it. You can. I have it open right now, so invite people to join it as well. I want to see if we can really build up the community there first just by word of mouth before we promote it from uh, our our own Twitter accounts where we have like a, you know, just between NBA math and hardware enough, we have like 90,000 people who follow those accounts, mostly NBA math. I know shout out to, to fro for, for building that up. Follow us on Twitter at hardware knocks. Follow me on Twitter. As I mentioned at Dan Valley, F A V A L E follow Adam at Frommel zero nine F R O M A L. Uh, follow us on Instagram at hardware underscore knocks and follow us on YouTube, youtube.com search hardware knocks. We will come up. And again, can't stress this enough. Join Discord. Let's see if you have recommendations for it. Uh, if you want to get conversations started, if you have any questions about it, just 
just ask me. The, the link is in the pod, pe- podcast description. And I really hope that uh, we'll be seeing you there. Maybe we can even run just mailbag style conversations where if I can't get to questions or we'll just hold certain sessions there, we could sync it up with Twitch um, or other streaming places. And maybe we could watch as a community, we could watch games together. We could watch basketball movies together. If there's any movies you want to nominate, I'm not trying to commit you to events that you don't have time for. My overarching message here is to close this out. Shout out Frankie Lakina, who really, 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 I imagine, probably, most likely, not so sure actually, but let's just say he does, want you to join the Audio Knox Discord channel.